Hello, my lovely pod friends. It's Amber, and welcome back to Pan Am, a podcast where I try to tease out the stories of the people who lived in Paris and the events that took place by examining the footprints that they've left behind. Usually, something tangible that we can still see today, be it a mere morsel of a stone, the remnants of a wall, or just a street name. And yet, once again, today I'm on the trail of something that has completely disappeared. So come with me as we go looking for yet another missing statue. So I've come down into the third arrondissement, the Haute Marais, to Arzen Metier, which is the best metro stop, if you ask me, to the museum, not inside the museum, but outside the museum, on the trail of the Statue of Liberty. Yes, that's right. This is the statue that we're going to be talking about today. Now, I'm sure most of you know that the Statue of Liberty is actually French, was a present from the French to the Americans. Um, And why we're talking about her today is because she's just been sent back to America. This little statue that used to be here at Arts and Metiers, which was the French are calling the little sister of the Statue of Liberty, was being sent over for the 135-year anniversary And she was going to go over to New York, spend a week with her big sister, and then she's going over to the to Washington DC to the French Embassy. So by the time you hear this, that's where she should be at the Embassy. But don't worry, even though this little Statue of Liberty is gone, there were actually seven statues in Paris. So now there are only six. But how she came into being, and her story and her journey are actually really fascinating because although we now think of her as the quintessentially American icon she nearly never was and she nearly stayed in France so let's find out more let's start at the beginning shall we it supposedly all began in 1865 at a dinner party in Versailles at the home of one Edouard Laboulet He had brought a group of people together to mourn the death of American President Abraham Lincoln, who had just been assassinated, and also to celebrate the end of the American Civil War. France had actually presented a medal to Lincoln's widow, saying, Tell Mrs Lincoln that in this little box is the heart of France. And the medal bore an inscription which translates to... Honest Lincoln, who abolished slavery, re-established the Union and saved the Republic without veiling the Statue of Liberty. Now, it's interesting this mention of a metaphorical Statue of Liberty before there ever was an actual Statue of Liberty. Maybe this is what inspired Edward. But who was Edouard? Well, he was a politician and an author and a big, big fan of America, especially American democracy. He wrote a three-volume work on the political theory of the United States, supported the Union and the abolition of slavery. He admired American institutions such as the free press, education, the separation of church and state, as well as what he saw as an American commitment to the democratic process. He felt that the Americans had got democracy right, whereas the French had gone awry. Specifically, America had achieved what France was unable to do, namely equality and liberty without tyranny. In France, tyranny came either in the form of the people, 
the angry mob, which we saw at the time of the revolution, or the government itself, which turned democracy into dictatorship with Napoleon's one and three. Just to recap, since the French Revolution until La Boulet's dinner party, so that's nearly a hundred years, France had really been living in a political whirlwind with a revolving door of regimes. First, following the downfall of the monarchy, there was a republic, the first. Then Napoleon Bonaparte came along to create his first empire. But following his defeat at Waterloo, France goes back to, that's right, a monarchy. Next, Louis Napoleon comes along and there's a brief Second Republic, but he goes on to stage a coup and call himself Emperor, bringing us back to the dinner party. So that is two republics, two emperors and three kings, meaning that as Le Boulet's dinner guests sat around his table enjoying their meal, France was an empire once again, although not for long. Little could they know that France was soon to be thrown into the chaos of the Franco-Prussian War. Paris was laid to siege, the Commune would cause havoc, and there were terrible scenes, notably at the zoo, but that's a different story. With all this in mind, it makes sense that Le Boulet would enjoy the idea of giving America a symbolic gift to commemorate the end of the American Civil War and the centenary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Remember, France had sent a lot of aid in terms of money and supplies to America during their original War of Independence and felt very much that they were partly responsible for the successful outcome. This colossal statue would symbolise all of this as well as the future and the hope for a new era of American democracy. But it would also remind France of their own woeful lack of democracy and liberty. Shady Laboulet. Everyone agreed it sounded fabulous. What could possibly go wrong? Right, let's leave Le Boulet and his friends enjoying their wine and meet the future sculptor of the Statue of Liberty, August Bartholdi. Bartholdi was brought up by his mother as sadly his father died when he was only two. Luckily, they were a wealthy family and he wanted for little. Also, he was the younger sibling and while his mother had not been keen on him being an artist, it worked out okay for him as his older brother towed the line and left him the freedom to follow his dreams typical younger sibling. He realised his calling early and by the tender age of 19 he had already won an important commission to make a model of General Rapp for his hometown in Colmar. This was thanks to a mixture of his talent and a devoted, connected, some might say pushy, mother. He was even able to display this work at the 1855 Universal Exhibition in Paris, a pretty impressive feat for a new young sculptor. Bartholdi was inspired by huge statuary, known as Colossus, and so for this first important commission, he was keen on making something as big as possible. In fact, it was so big that it filled his atelier, and in Paris they decided to display it at the entrance rather than inside the exhibition building, which is actually quite a nifty way to make sure that everyone got to see it. Now, since we're at the exhibition, let's take a moment to look up and take note of another very interesting piece. Decorating the top of the entrance of the Palais de l'Industrie, a building which is no longer here but was more or less where the Grand Palais is today, there was a stone sculptor called France Crowning Art and Industry and showed a group of three female figures depicting France, art and industry. But why is this piece so fascinating, I hear you ask? Well, 
It is the face of France, the central figure that I would like you to pay attention to. She stands with her arms out, wearing a sort of drapey Romanesque outfit, but her face is strikingly similar to that of the future Ms. Liberty. Now, this is of note because, for some reason, there is a lot of myth and speculation around where Bartholdi got his inspiration for his statue's face. There is a story that it was modelled on a sex worker from Pigalle, though few people believe this. Some say it was modelled on his brother, and I can see a bit of a resemblance. But the most common theory, and the one you hear most often, is that it was based on his mother's face, Charlotte Bartholdi. I actually listened to a French podcast during my research, Au Cœur de l'Histoire, that claimed that the face is modelled on his mother and the body on his wife. Now, I'm no Freudian, but that does feel a bit worrying. However, if you look at his mother's face side by side with that of the Statue of Liberty, there is not much of a resemblance. Personally, I just think Liberty is channeling his mother's energy. Charlotte Bartholdi was famously quite strict and imposing, even controlling in her children's lives. Liberty does have a sort of certain sternness about her, if you will. However, if you put Liberty next to the 1855 sculpture, the likeness is striking. Interestingly, the statue of France crowning art and industry was herself apparently inspired by another piece from the east entrance of the Louvre, that of Victory. Both Victory and France are still about, and if we look at them all together, you can definitely see a family resemblance. France looks like Liberty's sister. Victory, maybe a cousin. To see the ladies in real life, you must head to the Parc Saint-Cloud, just west of Paris, where France and her friends were moved after the exhibition, or to the Louvre to see Victory. Or, of course, my website or Instagram. I'll pop some pictures up for you to have a look at. Tell me what you think, if you agree that they look alike. Following this first success, Bartholdi made a tour of Egypt and Europe to learn more and see other great works of art. He was impressed by a number of monumental pieces and made drawings and took photos of his trip. He was keen to put his ideas into practice, but he needed a suitable project to get his teeth into. It was actually in Egypt that Bartholdi tried to get his first commission for a truly monumental piece, a colossus. At this time, the Suez Canal was being built... This was a project to connect the Mediterranean to the Red Sea. And in a nod to one of the great wonders of the ancient world, Bartholdi thought this huge endeavour needed a lighthouse. He proposed his idea to the ruler of Egypt, and it was a woman standing on a pedestal holding a torch above her head entitled either Egypt or Progress, carrying the light to Asia, with the light coming from the crown. Sound familiar? They loved the idea but actually had no money, so the project was abandoned. Bartholdi returned to Paris and continued to work on other projects until his life and everyone else's was interrupted by that Franco-Prussian war. Bartholdi took part in the war and was distraught by his region's defeat. Over the following years, he constructed a number of monuments celebrating French heroism in the defence against Germany. Amongst these projects was the Lion of Belfort. It is a massive sandstone lion carved into the rock. But you can also see an exact smaller copy of the statue at Donfer Rochereau in the 14th arrondissement of Paris. The lion deliberately looks westward, away from the east, in order to snub the Germans. Somehow, the lion, despite its dislike of Germany, miraculously escaped being melted down by them in the Second World War. You can hear more about this on my episode called Death and the Statues. 
but this sadly could not be said for another of Bartholdi's sculptures. Also inspired by his time in the Franco-Prussian War, there used to be a truly remarkable statue that once stood on the Place de Terne, not far from the Arc de Triomphe. It was dedicated to the aeronauts of the Siege of Paris and had a huge hot air balloon in the centre, with the city of Paris allegorically shown as a woman reaching out to a pigeon that is flying by bringing news from France. Now, pigeons and hot air balloons might sound unusual in war, but they were essential during the Siege of Paris. They were the only way to get messages in and out of the city. Keep in mind just how fraught those first hot air balloon flights must have been with no real navigational tools, and you can see just what a heroic endeavour it was. It makes me wish we relied on pigeons and hot air balloons today. Sadly, it's not the case. Two young boys are also shown in the statue taking over from fallen soldiers. On the pedestal, the names of the aeronauts and a list of the balloons and names of some of the victims could be found. Bartholdi is said to have designed this monument while on guard duty at the fortifications in Paris. Originally, he wanted the monument to be placed at the top of the Butte Montmartre from where Gambetta had taken his flight in his balloon. He wanted the balloon to be made of glass or alabaster and lit from inside to create, yes, you guessed it, a lighthouse illuminating Paris. He really loves lighthouses and I really love this idea. For various reasons, it was neither installed at Montmartre nor made to his specifications. Instead, it was completed posthumously in 1904 by another sculptor. At the inauguration, attended by veterans of the 1870 war, 5,000 pigeons were released, which is both heartwarming but also unnecessary. There are so, so many pigeons in Paris already. In 1941, this unique statue was melted down under the Vichy regime and never replaced, which is a real, real shame because I think that was a really good one. But we have digressed from our story, so let's get back to Liberty. Following his disappointment over his potential colossus in Egypt, Bartholdi made his living on smaller projects. And here we have our meet-cute because one of these projects including making a bust of La Boulet. So now our dynamic duo are in contact. But what next? The original idea had been to make this giant statue for the Americans in time for the centenary of their revolution in 1876, which was ambitious to say the least. Add a war and everything gets pushed back, so needless to say, this didn't happen. But Le Boulet, now with a sculpture chosen, was keen to get his idea off the ground. He realised they needed funds and, of course, support from the Americans. So, after the war, Bartholdi was sent to America, where he did his best to drum up interest and cash for the project. And what was this project he was presenting? Well, I'm sure you all know it was a statue of a goddess representing liberty holding a torch above her head in her right hand and in her left hand carrying a tablet with the date July 4th, 1776, written in Roman numerals, the date of the Declaration of Independence. On her head, she wears a crown with seven spikes, supposedly representing the seven seas and seven continents of the world, although apparently that is not true and the spikes are just meant to show sun rays and symbolise that she is divine. She's in motion, walking forward, broken chains at her feet representing freedom and the US's recent abolition of slavery. Bartholdi denies that his original Egyptian goddess idea influenced him, but I think we can agree they are similar. That he chose a female form to represent this is not surprising. 
Nations and virtues were traditionally represented by women. France had Marianne, Britain, Britannia and America, Colombia. Virtues were also feminine, victory, liberty, prudence. Most virtues were often represented by women. When we think of liberty in France, the first image that will probably come to mind is Delacroix's painting Liberty Guiding the People. It's perhaps the most famous version of liberty and would have been known to Bartholdi. In Delacroix's painting, we see Liberty holding a tricolour flag in one hand, in the other a rifle. She's wearing a Fijian cap on her head, a symbol of the revolution. She walks over the bodies of the fallen, leading people through the barricades, one gravity-defying bosom on display. This is the French version of Liberty, dynamic, exciting, but violent. The model Bartholdi chooses for the American version seems much more calm, serene and even grave. This is clearly a deliberate choice by the artist to show a more measured symbol of democracy, moving away from this violent and perhaps threatening idea of revolution, holding a light rather than a rifle. They are similar in that they are iconic, both in movement, both feminine, but different in so many ways. Guys, this is actually quite a long episode, longer than I anticipated. I didn't realise there was so much to say about liberty, but there is. So why don't we leave Bartholdi there, touring around America, showing people his small Statue of Liberty, trying to sort of drum up interest in the project. And next time we'll find out how he goes about making it, because let's face it, we all know the project does get made, and how that happens and what happens in France. So once again, thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, as ever, leave a review or tell a friend. It really, really helps me bring people to the show. Or if you're feeling generous, you can donate on Patreon. Patreons get some bonus episodes and I'm working to do more things. Or, of course, you can make a one-off donation on PayPal. Um, Thanks as ever to Christopher for all his incredible help with music and mixing and, and all of that things. Thank you so much. And this episode is for those patrons who have helped me. So thank you so much, Sally. Thank you so much, Dan. I really appreciate it. And come back next time to find out the rest. Bye. <laughs>